video, the first one. Drop your sword. Let us pray. Dear Jesus, thank you for today that we could gather here in your presence. And we pray we would feel exactly that. That whatever we have dragged in this week, whatever our day has brought us, that you would be with us. That you would speak to us this morning. That through it all, we would gather in your presence. I pray that the words I speak would not be mine, but would be your Holy Spirit speaking a message straight to our very hearts. I ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we have been working through our series called Drop Your Sword and how to read the Bible without hurting people. And we've covered various topics and our scriptures have been read by various people who have been impacted by those verses. And how sometimes we take the Bible and we use it to hurt people. Our sort of theme verse has been from 2 Timothy where it says that all scripture is inspired by God and is useful for teaching and training and correcting, but it's all designed to teach followers of Christ to do and to be good. That that's the purpose of scripture, and so when we start taking out individual verses and using them against people or against groups of people, we are acting in a way that is outside of what scripture was designed to do. And so last week, we heard a video from Bruce Wayne about justice and revenge. The week before, we heard from our very own Dot about what it is to be a submissive wife and how domestic abuse in those situations and using the Bible to promote that is absolutely inexcusable. That your primary goal as those who are the victims of abuse is to get safe. And the primary goal of those who do the abusing is to knock it off. Incidentally, that sermon we had at the 11 p.m. or the 11 a.m. and the 7 p.m. more service. Between those two, it's been viewed online over 730 times as of this morning. It's become our most popular video on our Facebook page. It has been viewed as far away as some one person in New Zealand. I don't know anyone in New Zealand, but somebody in New Zealand watched this video. We talked the first week about how do we read our Bible? And how, how do we, because it can get a little confusing, especially if you start in Genesis and try and read to the end. So how do we break that down and read it day by day? So today's scripture is Genesis chapter 19. And it's one that has been used in all sorts of things and ways to hurt people. And so we have a video here uh, of, of a pastor friend of mine reading this scripture. Go ahead. Hello, my name is Pastor Matt Rendulic. I'm a United Methodist pastor, and I also happen to be a gay dude. And uh, this morning, I will be reading from Genesis chapter 19, verses 1 through 11. The two angels arrived at Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gateway of the city. 
When he saw them, he got up to meet them and bowed down with his face to the ground. My lords, he said, please turn aside to your servant's house. You can wash your feet and spend the night and then go to go on your way in the morning. No, they answered. We will spend the night in the square. But he insisted so strongly that they did go with him and entered his house. He prepared a meal for them, baking bread without yeast, and they ate. Before they had gone to bed, all the men from every part of the city of Sodom, both young and old, surrounded the house. They called out to Lot, Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us so that we can have sex with them. Lot went outside to meet them and shut the door behind him and said, No, my friends, don't do this wicked thing. Look, I have two daughters who have never slept with a man. Let me bring them out to you, and you can do whatever you would like with them. But don't do anything else to these men, for they have come under the protection of my roof. Get out of the way, they replied. This fellow came here as a foreigner, and now he wants to play the judge. We'll treat you worse than them. They kept bringing pressure on Lot and moved forward to break down the door. But the men inside reached out and pulled Lot into the house and shut the door. Then they struck the men who were at the door of the house, young and old, with blindness so that they could not find the door. The word of the Lord for the people of the Lord. So, let's just put this on the table here. This is weird. This is, this is disturbing. Strangers come into town, and Lot is standing there, and he recognizes that there are strangers. And he says, you know what, come to my house, I'll feed you, you can hang out and spend the night. And they say, no, we're just going to sleep in the center of town. Lot recognizes that this is a dangerous place, that this is probably not the safest thing to do. So it says he begs them, he pleads with them, come stay in my house. I'll feed you, I'll keep you safe, everything, come, come to my place. So they do. Then in the middle of the evening, as all of this is happening, the welcoming committee of Sodom shows up. They're not there with cookies and pie. They're not there to be nice and find out who the new people are. The verse Pastor Matt read says they wanted to have sex with them. Okay. Strangers show up. The response of normal human beings is not to go and have sex with them. That, that's... I feel like I shouldn't have to say this, but don't have sex with strangers. It, it, that's generally not a good idea. But then if that's not weird enough, Lot looks at him and says, you know what, don't take the men. Here are my daughters. Can we, can we just say the obvious here? This is not a healthy situation. This is Jerry Springer level stuff going on here. It's generally a bad idea to try and have sex with strangers, especially when they're in someone else's house. After this, in verses 12 through 29, outlines that God is angry. God is furious and decides to level the town to the ground. And he does. Destroys it. Now, Fast forward a couple of thousand years and we start throwing around words like sodomy or sodomite. 
and we start using this scripture taken completely out of context to say that God clearly hates gay people and we can use this verse to justify not baking cakes, not renting to people, not hiring them, because clearly God thinks they should all be destroyed. During World War II and, and the Holocaust provided by the Nazis, the number one group of people who were killed were Jewish people. Number two were gay people. And they used verses like this to justify it. Number three were the Jehovah's Witnesses. They were using verses like Genesis 19 and how God destroyed that city to say this is all wrong and we should not allow this so we need to stomp it out as far as possible. But I think there's more to it than that. Because every time we become convinced as humans that this is clearly what the Bible says. We've taken it out of context and applied it into situations where it doesn't really exist. How many times have people taken this verse and they'll look at you and say, well, actually, Genesis 19 says this. Every time we want to do something like that, there are verses pointing back at us. Because the Bible is clear. Shellfish you should not eat, and it is sinful if you eat shellfish. So no more lobster. The Bible is clear that you cannot wear clothing made of more than one type of fabric. So every one of us in here with a polycotton blend is a sinner in the hands of an angry God. You can't. And we go, oh, well, that's Old Testament stuff. But Jesus is very clear that if you own things, you have to sell them and give them to the poor, give the money to the poor. There's no exceptions here. Jesus is very clear on this. Jesus is very clear that unless you hate your parents, you cannot follow Jesus. He doesn't say, if you mildly dislike them, or if they annoy you, it's okay. He uses some of the strongest language. Sorry, guys. Sorry. My, my parents will be, my mom will be here next week, and, well, I told her she, she can't come because I have to hate her. The Bible says I have to. He looked at him. He, he looked right at him and went, sorry. But every time the Bible is clear, there's always more going on. And I think that's the case here, that what we're seeing in Genesis 19 is, is truly something that makes God angry that infuriates the God of the universe and he can't handle it. But I'm not quite convinced it's homosexuality. I think it has everything to do with how we treat those who are different than us. I think it has everything to do with how we treat those who aren't from around here. How we welcome the stranger and we welcome those who are in need. And, and I think this because once we put Genesis 19 back in and start looking at the whole of scripture, we come across Ezekiel chapter 16. If you have your Bible, turn with me to Ezekiel chapter 16. Verse 49. This is the sin of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters were proud, had plenty to eat, and enjoyed peace and prosperity, but she didn't help the poor and needy. They became haughty 
and did detestable things in front of me, and I turned away from them as soon as I saw it. Within the Bible, there are seven verses about homosexuality, if you include Genesis 19. There are seven. There are over 300 times where God looks at his followers and says, if you have more than enough, your job is to help those who don't. Over and over and over again. It's not wrong to be rich. It's not wrong to be wealthy. It's not wrong to have possessions. But with that level of power comes a great level of responsibility to help those who don't have it. Now, we can, we can debate homosexuality forever, and we can take and tear apart these seven verses. The United Methodist Church has been doing literally this since 1972, and they have yet to come to an agreement. Hopefully, at the end of the month, they might maybe almost have an agreement. Probably not, but maybe. But at the end of the day, if we take these seven verses and we place an emphasis on them greater than the 300 verses where God says to care for those in need, what we've done is we've just taken Scripture, pulled it out of its context, and used it to hurt people. That's not what it was designed for. That's not what it's for. So often, that's exactly what happens. But if Scripture is used for the training up for us to do good, then we can sit here and we can squabble on these seven verses all day if we want. But that's not the purpose. That's not, the, that's not what we're called to do. Over 300 times, care for those who have less than you do. Now let's put some tangibles to this. Anybody have a penny in their pocket or a coin of any kind, a, chain, a piece of change, a nickel, a dime, a dollar? One of those Sacagawea dollar coins? No. If you have a penny in your pocket, if you have change, if you brought a dollar to donate for the chili cook-off today, you are in the top 8% of the world's richest people. If you have a hobby, whatever that hobby is, you are in the top 5% of the world's richest people. If you have an annual salary of $50,000, Congratulations, you are officially a one percenter. You are in the top one percent of the world's richest people. If you have a car, you're in the point zero one percent of the world's richest people. You have more than nearly everyone. No, I was asking, it was rhetorical. <laughs> It was rhetorical. No, it's okay. No, please don't. Save it for the chili cook-off. But if you have more, if you have enough food to eat, you have more than most. The sin of Sodom was that they had more than enough, and instead of helping those in need, they tried to have sex with strangers. God says, that's not how this works. Please don't do that. When we have more, the average American throws away 30% of their food. They go to the grocery store, they buy 10 bananas, three of them get thrown away. Gone. They're usually the one, 
the ones that have one brown spot that my son decides he's not going to eat because it has one brown spot. Gone. We throw away 30% of our food. We clearly have more than enough. God is not saying that's wrong. It is not wrong to have more. What happens, though, is you are then expected to use that for those who don't have enough. So we can sit here and put this verse and pull it out of its context and say, well, this is clearly about homosexuality, and this is clearly how we're going to use it to oppress and discriminate against an entire group of people. Or we can change it and say this really becomes about how we treat those who are different than us. You know, I will never tell you you have to believe a certain way about a certain topic. We as United Methodists have many topics that we just don't all agree on. There are good and well-educated scholars of the Bible on both sides of the issue. You should read your Bible and you should make your own decision. What I will tell you is if whatever decision you make brings you to a place where you say, I hate this entire group of people, you're reading the Bible to hurt people. That was never what it was designed for. We as Nixon United Methodist Church, we have a mission statement. Part of that mission statement says that we minister to the community and the world in the power of the Holy Spirit. The only way we can make that true is if we don't put qualifications on it. Our question is not, well, is your spouse the correct gender? Do you look the way we think you should look? Do you act the way we think you should act? Our only qualifying question is, are you part of the community or are you part of the world? And if the answer to either of those is yes, then our call becomes to minister to everyone. Our call becomes to serve those who are in need. We can decide where we stand on the issue as individuals. We can decide, yes, it's right, yes, it's wrong. We can do whatever, but at the end of the day, we are commanded as followers of Christ to serve, regardless of that. Because at one point, Jesus, who is God, became flesh and blood, came as a baby here, with all the power and all the privilege and everything that comes along with being God, stepped out of that eternity, gave it all up, knowing that we might do things that he doesn't approve of. We, we might lie to our neighbors. We might covet. We might steal. We might murder. We might do. We might eat shellfish and wear polycotton blends. But at the end of it, we are beloved of God. And so knowing that, Jesus gave up his entire life on a cross. The God of the universe died on a cross for you and for me, not because we looked right or acted right, but in spite of the fact that we don't. He didn't stay dead. Three days later, that same God in the flesh walked out of the tomb, fully alive, looked at his disciples and said, the people you see in need, go make disciples of them. And I will be with you even to the ends of the earth. All of that was done for us. We don't get to pick and choose who else gets to be included. We don't get to be like Genesis 19 and try and hate our neighbor. 
to hate the strangers among us. Our response as followers of God is to love and to care and to welcome because we were when we were still sinners. To that end, Jesus says, let me remind you, let me give you a constant reminder of what this takes. And on the night before he was crucified, he takes some leftover bread, the bread that was part of that 30% that would have been thrown away. And he gives it to his disciples and he says, this is my body, broken for you. And then he takes a cup filled with wine and he gives it to his disciples and he says, this is my blood poured out for you. It's part of a new covenant, a new way of doing things. And he gave it to Thomas, who was going to doubt in a couple of days. To Judas, who was going to betray him. To Peter, who was going to deny him. To all the disciples that ran away. Jesus says, you know what? You are still beloved. And so we're going to share in that meal here shortly. And we believe that that meal is open to everybody, no matter what. There's no age, there's no socioeconomic status, there's no membership requirements or even a belief requirement. We believe that everybody gets to take and eat because it is a means of grace where we become transformed into the image of a living God. Let us pray. Dear Jesus, we confess that we have at times taken Bible verses out of context. We have pulled them out from their original words and used them to hurt people. We pray that you would forgive us of that. We pray that you would show us what it is to read your word without hurting others so that we may use it for good. And we pray that you would be with us as we gather around this table that this simple bread and this simple cup would be transformed into your body and your blood, that we may be transformed into your image and sent out on your mission, that we may care for those in need, that we may be with those who are hurting. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.